coming of the Second World War, many eyes in imprisoned Europe turned hopefully or desperately toward the freedom of the Americas. And so a tortuous roundabout refugee trail sprang up. Then by train or auto or foot across the rim of Africa to Casablanca in French Morocco. Coming to you from Cambridge, Massachusetts, nowhere near Casablanca, I'm Brian Kenny, and this is The Business, the official podcast of the Harvard Business School. In this edition, we're tackling a tough and enduring and global problem, corruption. In the 1942 classic film Casablanca, corruption played a pivotal role. People were desperate to flee the war, if they could get letters of transit to safety. You can ask any price you want, but you must give me those letters. And it didn't always go so well. Get away from that phone. I would advise you not to interfere. I was willing to shoot Captain Rhino, and I'm willing to shoot you. Hello. Put that phone down. Get me the radio tower. Put it down. Casablanca is now the commercial center of Morocco. It has haute couture and Muslim culture, and yes, it still has corruption. It's not the most corrupt place in the world, not by a long shot. Last year, the anti-corruption agency, Transparency International, ranked 177 countries based on how corrupt they were perceived to be. Nobody has a perfect score, not even Denmark, which was the closest to squeaky clean. Two-thirds of all countries were in the nasty, corrupt bottom half. Lining the very bottom? Sudan, Afghanistan, North Korea, and Somalia. So if you're looking for evidence of corrupt practices anywhere, in any country in the world, including the U.S., you can find it. Everybody is to leave here immediately. This cafe is closed until further notice. Clear the room at once. How can he close me up? On what ground? I'm shocked, shocked to find that gambling is going on in here. You're winning, sir. Oh, thank you That's the much. policeman Everybody pocketing his winnings at Rick's Café American, the gin joint the American Rick runs in the film. Humphrey Bogart played Monsieur Rick in the movie. In reality, there was never a Rick's Café, but there is now. I'm Kathy Krieger. My title, you could say, is Madam Rick, owner of Rick's Café, the Rick's Café. Kathy Krieger's written a book about her adventures as an American entrepreneur in Morocco. It's called Rick's Cafe, Bringing the Film Legend to Life in Casablanca. There is no gambling going on at the real Rick's Cafe, but there is a well-stocked bar and a staff of many Moroccans. The decor is lush and intimate with lamps that look a lot like what you'll see in the movie. I was buying lamps like crazy. There's Sam on the piano. Oh, wait a minute. His name is Isam, and he's one of the bosses here. But let me tell you about the big boss, Kathy Krieger. She founded her own travel agency in Portland, Oregon, with $800. She eventually moved to Tokyo during the boom times in Japan. She joined the Foreign Commercial Service of the U.S. federal government, and that brought her to Czechoslovakia and eventually to Morocco. Her role as a commercial attaché was to help American companies that wanted to invest in Morocco. It lasted a while, but when 9-11 came around, she decided it was time to leave government work and fulfill an entrepreneurial dream. For me, the biggest challenge was this was the project of my life. I actually emptied out the U.S. government equivalent of a 401k and the contributions I'd made to my federal retirement that I would never receive because I just liquidated my contributions. I had no real estate in the States, nothing. So I was gambling everything, and I had also the money of my friends. 
The friends who helped bankroll Kathy Krieger were called the usual suspects. They believed in her. She believed in herself. She put over a million dollars into the project. She bought a ramshackle Riyadh, a once glorious home with a courtyard in a once glorious part of Casablanca. But like many savvy business people, she ran into one bureaucratic roadblock after another. They don't do entrepreneurship well. The nature here is you do business with a rich client of a bank who wants money for his son to do something, or for friends, or relatives. Everything is connected, and they don't take a gamble on people that just have an idea that's good, no matter how fantastic it was. I just see corruption as one of the biggest impediments to growth and progress in many emerging market countries, including, for example, India, which is where I grew up. This is Karthik Ramana. He's an associate professor of business administration at the Harvard Business School, and he teaches about the intersection of ethics, economics, and the law. Corruption is a particularly difficult problem to solve because, in some sense, uh, everybody can point at someone else and say, oh, but they're doing it too. So it is what we would call sort of a problem of the commons. And, you know, the continual presence of corruption does result, if you must, in a continued degeneration in social values across society or in values across society. But at the same time, it's very hard to organize a, a, a consensus, uh, if you must, to, uh, to say no to corrupt practices. Of course, when you start any business enterprise, especially in a foreign land, it helps to have a local ally, someone from the region who can help you navigate your way. Madam Rick, Kathy Krieger, found her local ally in someone she says had integrity and pull. There was one person who I trusted to go to and ask advice. And I would follow that advice, whatever he said. And that was one of my best contacts from the commercial side. He was the governor of Casablanca. Looking back, if he hadn't been in that place at that time, I never probably would have had the courage to think about the idea. The idea of starting a business in a foreign country is daunting enough. Karthik Ramana says enlisting the help of peers inside the country is exactly the right thing to do. But first... Be clear of your own set of scruples. I think it's important that anyone who's going to be engaged in this process sits down and, if you must, makes a list uh, physically or in their mind of what are some lines that they absolutely won't cross. Those parameters should define, if you must, the values of your organization. They should guide the kind of people you hire. They should guide the kind of uh, relation, business relationships you engage or enter into. They should guide the kind of suppliers and customers you deal with. And, of course, they should guide your relationships with government. It's also important to constantly have sounding boards, if you must. It's very easy to be immersed in a context that might be corrupt and say, oh, everybody's doing it, therefore it's okay. Which is why I think having this commitment to a set of values before the fact and then constantly having a community of peers or people you respect, people who are willing to say no to you, having that community to sound ideas off over the course of the actual difficult decisions that you're going to have to make. Kartik Ramana has his own guide star when it comes to teaching his students what to do if they're ever confronted with bribery or kickbacks or any kind of corrupt practice. He cites the work of Albert O. Hirschman, the economist and social scientist who laid out this framework for dealing with difficult ethical situations. You have three options. He calls them exit, voice, and loyalty. Let's take exit, meaning you just leave. 
you're an American doing business in a foreign country and a bribe is asked of you, you should just say no, not only because it is unethical and immoral, but also because you're very likely to face consequences back here in the United States. If you're part of a large multinational organization, then the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act here in the United States or the Anti-Bribery Act in the United Kingdom is likely to have the ability to prosecute you back home. So there should be absolutely no doubt in your mind that engaging in any form of bribery is wrong. If, if you feel in any way coerced or forced in, in this context, then exit is perhaps the most advisable context. So if you're, for example, an American doing business in Russia and you're being faced with the situation where you feel you're being extorted or government officials are demanding bribes, and, and you feel you have no other recourse, then your best bet is to just leave. There's the option of dealing in, loyalty. If you're, on the other hand, say, for example, a Russian citizen doing business in Russia, and you're faced with a corrupt government official who is demanding bribes or you're in an extortionary situation, the situation does, in fact, become more difficult. Where do you exit to? You are, after all, in your home country. Uh, so the question now becomes, do you pay up? Are you loyal in that context, loyal to the corrupt official? And then there's voice. Speak out. How can you use voice as a vehicle to combat corruption or prevent payment of bribes? So, for example, in Russia, one of the individuals we profiled is a gentleman called Alexei Navalny. He's a real estate lawyer by profession, became deeply distressed by the level of corruption in both, both wholesale and retail corruption in his home country, Russia, and over time decided um, to start using the internet, in particular blogging about his experiences with corruption, as a way of raising awareness of the issue. His blog became wildly successful, and Navalny has now been launched as a successful opposition candidate, and perhaps the only credible opposition candidate to Putin in Russia at this time. Of course, uh, this move has come at enormous personal cost to him. He has faced incarceration on numerous occasions, harassment by the police in Moscow. So it's not always clear that voice is the acceptable way to most people. But technology has helped the cause, according to Romana. One of the organizations we profiled on this particular point was a group called ipaidabribe.com, which is a group based out of Bangalore, India. And uh, they basically have set up a portal where individuals who have been faced or forced to pay a bribe are able to report that on the website. Sometimes they do so anonymously and sometimes they might do so in other ways that uh, expose the, the, at least the venue where the bribe was paid. So there is a text messaging service that's available for individuals in particularly in some areas of Bangalore where when they're dealing with a government official and they are asked to pay a bribe, they can text on the spot to this central server and say, we're being asked to pay a bribe in this particular area. And so this website can provide these dynamic heat maps of where bribes are being demanded at what time, and in some sense, a real-time reporting of the issue. Technology such as this does help raise the salience of the issue, but it's hard to say that this impact is actually shifting social norms in a particularly productive way. 
Kathy Krieger went through heck trying to start Rick's Cafe in Casablanca. Three months before she was supposed to open, they pulled her liquor license. Just one more affront. Almost always, the bribes in these sort of situations are intended to expedite the process rather than to actually make it happen. So sometimes it's a question of waiting six months rather than waiting two or three days, which is what you would get if you pay the bribe. Rick's Cafe in Casablanca opened up 10 years ago. The place is now thriving and Kathy's turning a profit. She sits at the dimly lit corner of the bar every night, greets guests at the door, and loves what she's created with the help of the usual suspects and some local Moroccans. The saving grace for me was there was no choice because I had put everything I had into it. They knew they were stuck with me. There was no way I could could say, well, this wasn't a good idea. I guess I'll go back. No way. This is what I want to do in life. You must remember this. A kiss is just a kiss. A sigh is just a sigh. The fundamental things apply as time goes by. You heard Karthik Ramana mention the I Pay to Bribe website. You can find it and check out Kathy Krieger's Rick's Cafe in Casablanca on our website. You can also listen to previous episodes of The Business. Go to hbs.edu news. Look for The Business in the left sidebar under Sources. In the next few weeks, check back with us to hear Ethan Bernstein, the author of the award-winning paper The Transparency Paradox. He'll tell us about how worker productivity changes when management is watching. You might be surprised by what he says. I'm Brian Kenny with The Business, the official podcast of Harvard Business School. See you next time. Knock on wood. Say, who's got trouble? We got trouble. How much trouble? Too much trouble. Well, now, don't you bow. Just knuckle down and knock on wood. Who's unhappy? We're unhappy. How unhappy? Too unhappy. Uh-oh, that won't do. When you are blue, just knock on wood. Who's unlucky? We're unlucky. How unlucky? You're unlucky. But your luck will change if you'll arrange to knock on wood. Who's got nothing? We got nothing. How much nothing? You much nothing. Say nothing's not an awful lot, but knock on wood. Now, now who's happy? We're happy. Just how happy? Very happy. That's the way we're gonna stay, so knock on wood. Now who's lucky? We're all lucky. Just how lucky? Very lucky. Well, smile up then, and once again, let's knock on wood.